Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Happy Monday. And because it is Monday, my colleague Will Salatan is back on the podcast, off for a week. Good to have you back, Will. Uh, thanks, Charlie. I really missed you last week. Well, we definitely missed you, although uh, Bill Crystal sat in, and I, I think we had some we had some we had some stuff to talk about as we do today. I want to talk about Ukraine. I want to talk about Donald Trump's decision to endorse Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, which I admit I'm somewhat obsessed about. Um, I also want to take a shot at, I don't know, Chris Christie. I feel like I've done this before. But um, if you could indulge me for a moment, uh, Will, I have to have an editor's note about something that we did on Friday's podcast. Is that okay? Go for it. Okay, so um, on, on Friday's podcast, uh, Tim Miller and I, we there was a lot of heavy stuff. So uh, as, as I've done in the past, I did a palate cleanser. And for those of you, you can go back and you can listen to all of this. Our palate cleanser was um, a guy from Arizona whose name is uh, Ethan Schmidt. I think it's Ethan Schmidt Crockett. And he's a he's kind of a super deplorable MAGA head from Arizona um, who who taped himself, who re recorded himself sitting in his car explaining how he was the smartest person in the world, has the highest IQ in the world because he wouldn't wear a mask and he wouldn't get vaxxed, which made him even smarter than Trump. So on the podcast, Tim and I took the opportunity to reach for this low-hanging fruit and mock the guy, okay? Um, and he was eminently mockable. But afterwards, I got a note from Brom Resnick, who is one of Arizona's top political journalists. He's with uh, uh, Channel 12 down in, uh, in, in Arizona and one of the most respected political journalists in the state. And uh, I, I want to read his note, okay? Hi, guys. Love your podcast, but I need to point out that the soundbite you laughed at to open the podcast Friday came from this guy, Ethan Schmidt. This tweet is just a glimpse of what he's done in the Phoenix area, and he included uh, the tweet. Anti-mast activist Ethan Schmidt Crockett was trying to harass another LGBTQ-friendly church in Arizona. Thankfully, a pair of security guards stopped him in the parking lot before he got close to the front door. He's now telling his followers the guards were FBI agents. And Resnick goes on to say, just Google Ethan Schmidt and Mesa wig store. Because this is a guy who is, so we say, highly sketchy. So back to his email. I stopped calling this class of Trumper performative right winger crazy a long time ago. Ethan is known to police. In fact, I have security stationed in my driveway this weekend because of Ethan. I cover politics for the NBC affiliate in Phoenix. Charlie and I are both alums of the Milwaukee Journal. Yes. I know you can't possibly know any of this, but these guys stopped being funny a long time ago. They are dangerous. Best wishes, Brom. Um, and you're, he's right. You know, there is nothing. This this is, of course, the dilemma. Uh, you have these clowns with flamethrowers, but they still have flamethrowers. So you toggle back and forth between being amused by them and laughing about them and realizing, you know what, guys like this are not just toxic politically, they actually threaten people and people are afraid of them. And, you know, I, I read that note and I thought, you know, if this guy pops up in the news in some really sort of dark and sinister way and we were laughing about him, that would not be a good thing. So I, I wanted to start our Monday podcast by acknowledging that this guy 
may be out there, but he's not funny at all. And uh, this is, this I think is going to be an evergreen, uh, an evergreen comment. So we'll, uh, you were you were fortunate enough not to be involved in that that particular mock fest. Uh, well, it's it's alarming. Uh, I did not know the backstory on this mm-hmm. guy, and it just kind of illustrates, you know, where this reverse vetting process of quackery goes. Where you know, you have people who say everything the establishment is telling you is wrong, everything the fake news is telling you is wrong, and they live in a fantasy world. And fantasies can get dangerous real fast. They can get real fast, and we've seen this happen over and over again. So this is no longer theoretical. By the way, speaking of theoretical, um, I wasn't I wasn't going to get to this right away, but over the weekend, I think the the Western world had kind of a scare with the French presidential election. There were some polls suggesting that Marine Le Pen, who is you know the extreme far right winger, um, might have a chance to. Uh, you know, win the presidency of France. And this is somebody who makes no secret of her um, admiration for Vladimir Putin, was outspoken in her support for uh, Putin's annexation of Crimea back in 2012. She's actually said the policies that represent are those of Trump and Putin. Um, She actually is financed um, by the Kremlin. Um, As it turned out, she finishes second. She goes into the runoff, so there is a scare. But President Macron uh, outpaced what the polls suggested he would do. But I guess the reason I'm bringing this up is that at least in France, they they had the scare and they're not in the position that the United States was in 2016. If you could indulge me for, for a moment here, you know, I, w- I was thinking about how genuinely awful it would be to have someone like Le Pen elected in France. Uh, Washington Post said uh, uh, Le Pen, and I'm, I know I'm not pronouncing it, Le Pen uh, victory, in the second round would mark the first far-right presidency in French history. It would upend politics in Europe, replacing the most fervent advocate of European Union cooperation with someone known for anti-EU rhetoric, giving an official platform to the far-right at a time when nationalists in many other European countries have been struggling. And, you know, how unthinkable, how disastrous that would be. And yet, it's only one-tenth as disastrous as what's actually already happened in this country and may happen again. I mean, it's one thing for far right pro-Putin nationalists to be elected the president of France. But I, I mean, how much worse that it's possible that it's actually happened in the United States already? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, none of this stuff is unthinkable because we've lived through it. We're living through it. Right. Yeah. We, we lost our right to throw stones uh, in yeah. 2016. And, uh, and, you know, the part of Le Pen that really troubles me the most, I mean, she can say all she wants about how her her policies are similar to those of Putin. I mean, I'm sure she's now backtracking on that now that he's, his policies are, you know, murder in, in Ukraine. But but Le Pen absolutely wants to pull France out of NATO. I mean, to, yeah. to the extent that she can. And there is no great, I mean, this week I've been just looking, looking at NATO stuff. There's no greater gift to Putin than, you don't even have to say you're pro-Putin. You just have to be an advocate of dissolving NATO. And you pull France out of NATO and, you know, what's, you know, you've gutted it in Europe. And, uh, and, and it's, as you point out, Trump's done exactly the same thing. Trump tried to pull the United States out of NATO, said he would do it in a second term. And what has alarmed me is it's not just Trump, but larger parts of the Republican Party are very iffy about NATO. And uh, yeah, so France, the United States, we, we, are, we are in danger of dissolving this alliance. 
So over the weekend, one of the more interesting political developments was that Donald Trump decided that he was going to endorse another candidate for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. He, uh, this is his second try at picking a senator for Pennsylvania. The first guy was Sean Parnell, deplorable candidate who had to drop out after uh, allegations of spousal abuse. Uh, now he is endorsing Dr. Oz. Which is interesting because he could have gone with this guy, David McCormick, former CEO of Bridgewater, turned himself into a born-again Trumpist. He was a former undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs under the Bush administration, graduate of West Point, uh, earned the Bronze Star, has a PhD from Princeton, married to former high-ranking Trump economic official Dina Powell, surrounded himself with Trump loyalists like Hope Hicks. But Donald Trump <laughs> decides he's going with Dr. Oz, who's most famous for being a television hoaxer and huckster. Your thoughts, Will Salatan? Well, you know, there are people in the Republican Party who have entertained the notion that Donald Trump stands for something, right? That there's this thing called an America first agenda and that that's what Trump represents. And then they've tried to sort of mold the party around him. It, there is no agenda, right? There is whatever he thinks will sell. And the selling itself is what Trump is. So, you know, him endorsing Dr. Oz is just a perfect representation of it's one salesman, one, you know, salesman of quackery endorsing another. And, you know, that's that's the soul of the guy. It's the narcissism. It's not the agenda. I think it's exactly right. Um, so I devoted my Morning Shots newsletter to this, or at least I, I, I let off with this, the GOP's huckster hoaxer axis. I noticed that there's a lot of uh, hand-wringing in Trump world about all of this because, of course, you know, Oz is not only has no political background whatsoever, he's got a long Long, long, long track record of, shall we say, heresies for the, the right wing. Uh, but none of that really seems to matter uh, to Donald Trump, who, who I think looks at him and says, look, you're a fellow television huckster. You know, I mean, this is the Donald Trump, you know, the founder of Trump Steaks, Trump Airlines, Trump Vodka, Trump Mortgage, Trump, you know, Trump University. And he sees Oz as a kindred spirit. I mean, he's not endorsing Oz despite the fact that Oz has been accused of peddling this quackery and disinformation, I mean, that's what attracts him and binds him to him. I mean, it's, it, you know, when he is explaining why he's endorsing Oz, he talks about the fact that he was on television for a long time and got good ratings, and that's the ultimate poll. I mean, this is just pure, undistilled Trump. And all of these Trumpists out there going, oh, my goodness, oh, I I love Trump, but, man, this guy, this is too much. Like, what it? What the fuck did you think you were buying into <laughs> when you bought the ticket on the Trump train? Are you really amazed that it ends up here, that it ends up with Dr. Oz? But uh, rather extraordinary. Can, yeah. can I can I just confess on this Sweet. on this topic to a, a, this, a familiar kind of schadenfreude about, oh, yeah. you know, these guys who debase themselves to kiss Trump's ring. Uh, McCormick at being just the latest of them. Yeah, I know. They, they, they bend themselves all out of shape. They, they throw away any semblance of ethics they used to have to get his support. And then for him to betray them every time, I it know, is every just glorious. I think at some point we need to turn into a verb, like he lindsayed himself. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are some people whose names become, you know, just words like Quisling. Quisling, who, you know, who was the Norwegian... Nazi collaborator, we we actually, you know, use it. You know, so-and-so is a quizzling. So we could say that, 
No, he linseed himself. But it was it, <laughs> it is interesting watching people who are still trying, you know, the king can do no wrong. So even Mo Brooks, you know, who was also thrown under the bus by Trump, is saying it's his staff, his staff playing him again. They're all from the swamp. Uh, Eric Erickson, who has been heroically trying to to find someone to blame for this, says, uh, you know, says my text messages are blowing up with people saying, you know, WTF is Susie Wiles doing? Okay, I know we are all supposed to know who Susie Wiles is, but you know, yes, the the wily Susan Wiles, the wily Rasputin. No, this is pure Trump. You can't blame the staff for this. Yeah. I, so this is this is uh, my my thought here is occasioned a little bit by where I was last week. I, I well I, I missed our podcast, yeah. but I was at a, a thing called the Faith Angle Conference, a, a wonderful gathering of people talking about faith and politics and society. And and so I'm inspired uh, thinking about that. That Donald Trump should be a book of the Bible, shouldn't he? I mean, <laughs> there should be a book of the Bible in which this character, this, this sort of diabolical Trump character, goes around exposing the hollowness of the people around him, the Lindsays, the McCormick. The, the the people who just he, he he arrives to sort of test your spine. You know, you show that you have no character. You show how much you're willing to sell out, and then at the end, he betrays you. And that's the comeuppance. That's the way the that's the way this book of the Bible should end. Yeah, or at least should if if it's not going to be a book of the Bible, which I think is unlikely, um, maybe a Netflix series where just somebody goes around and this is their mission in life is to expose how hollow everyone is. Okay, so it is Monday. We have some sound bites uh, to work through. Uh, Will, should we start with? Should we start with Chris Christie because we haven't had Chris Christie on in a while? Let's let's do that right after this. People say that puffiness and bags under the eyes are the hardest things to get rid of until now. Introducing Genucel Plant Stem Cell Therapy. Some studies show that plant stem cell therapy can help target eye puffiness and bags. Due to this new technology, Genucel is an incredibly powerful natural serum. And with its instant effects, it's guaranteed to show results in as little as 12 hours or your money back. That's right. Some users saw results in only 12 hours with dramatic improvement in two weeks. I have some friends who just rave about this. Genucel contains eight extra ingredients and uses plant stem cell technology to help get longer lasting and brilliant results. So go to genucel.com slash bulwark right now to try risk-free. Say goodbye to puffiness and bags today. Order right now with our special code BULWARK to get an instant 10% off your order. Genucel promises the best skincare, best results, or your money back. Go to genucel.com slash BULWARK. That's genucel.com slash BULWARK. Okay, we are back with Will Monday morning. It's always good to look back at uh, what people said over the weekend. Did you catch Chris Christie over the weekend on with Jonathan Carl? Chris Christie is a... Uh, is on ABC's This Week, suggesting that Liz Cheney actually wanted to be kicked out of leadership. Here's Chris. Just because you have a group of folks inside the House GOP caucus who are kicking some folks out. Look, my view has always been that Liz Cheney wanted to be kicked out. Uh, because remember, the first time that she made the statement she made, she was reelected um, to her leadership position. It's only when she continued after that, that looked like somebody who wanted to make a point and wanted to be kicked out. Well, she says the point she's making is to defend the Constitution of the but, United but, John, look, but, but, I mean, but whatever it is, it wasn't like she was looking to protect her position. Uh, okay. So, Will, okay, I understand that obviously she was willing to sacrifice her position, but, but that's not what Christie says, that she wanted to get kicked out, that she did it to herself. 
You know, she did it to herself. What is Chris Christie's game plan here? I am unclear on this. All right. So Chris Christie is just another one of these animals in the Republican Party who they they pretend to be tough guys and they're all cowards. They have no courage at all. And what they would have to do to be courageous would be to stand up for the truth for other people who stood up for the truth, like Liz Cheney, and to stand up against Donald Trump and all of his liars. Right. I mean, can we just compare this for a minute to what's going on in Ukraine? In Ukraine, we have a hero. We have, you know, Volodymyr Zelensky, the people around him, they, they're, they're literally under attack. They stand firm. They defend their country. And they tell the truth, right? Uh, I, I, what we have in this country is guys like Chris Christie, who've you know never done anything of courage and who, like, at this moment when they, you know... So the, just can we, can we start with the facts? The facts are Donald Trump lied about the 2020 election. Liz Cheney said Donald Trump is lying, right? She couldn't be silent like Chris Christie and be a coward. She had to say the truth. Donald Trump then persisted. He persisted in lying, right? And all Liz Cheney did was say, I mean, it wasn't her driving this, it was Trump driving this, right? And so the idea that she, you know, quote, wanted to like get herself kicked out just because she insisted on telling the truth is nuts, is just nuts. Well, I was, I'm trying to figure out what lane Chris Christie wants to be in uh, here. I mean, he, he wrote the book. He's broken with Trump. He's obviously was playing around with running himself. I just I, I don't know. OK, so um, other big story of the week. Um, Saudis invest two billion dollars with Jared Kushner, according to The New York Times, despite lots and lots and lots of misgivings that might have torpedoed a similar deal with almost anyone else. Now, you know, it, it, it is interesting, you know, why you have all this heavy breathing um, on Fox News, uh, et, et cetera, about Hunter Biden. There you have, in broad daylight, in real time, Jared Kushner just cashing in with some of the most brutal autocratic regimes in the world. And it's like, yeah, nothing to see here, I guess. At, le- at, least, at least if you're on Fox News. Yeah, and, and okay, so here's my sort of cynical democratic perspective on the Kushner story. It, it it's very so it's very much related to the Hunter Biden story, right? Like mm-hmm. sure. Demo- cashing in, yeah. Right. So let me stipulate up front, okay? I know there are like people out there who believe Hunter Biden is corrupt, the Biden family is corrupt, Joe Biden is corrupt. My personal opinion, Joe Biden is not corrupt. Joe Biden didn't do anything corrupt in Ukraine. He was trying to clean up cor- out corruption including a corrupt general prosecutor, but Hunter Biden himself looks pretty corrupt to me. Okay. Yeah. And Hunt, but, but the, pro, what, so Democrats, you know, we, we all have our Billy Carters, right? There's always somebody in the family who does what Hunter Biden did. And I do not want to defend that person, but Democrats, when they get, when they do corruption, they do this sort of petty, weak version of Republican corruption. Like the Democrats don't get the big bucks, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like what was Hunter Biden getting for even the China stuff? It was like, you know, $180,000 a month or something. You would have to work, I don't know how many months to get $2 billion that way, right? So I I could roll $180,000 a month, uh, Will. (laughs) I guess I'm not willing to buy in the, you guys are just for the chump change. It was, it was, it was pretty bad. I okay, okay. I but but I'm just telling you, two billion dollars just you know completely dwarfs the amount of money that Hunter Biden was on the take for. And we both know, Charlie, that if Republicans take over the House in this election, there's going to be a minimum of two years of investigations of Hunter Biden, hearings on Hunter Biden, right? And 
God bless them, let them find what, whatever the truth is, let it come out. But there's not going to be a single hearing about this disgusting deal between Kushner and the Saudis. Okay, so that's not speculative. That is a solid prediction. We, we make a lot of speculative predictions on programs like this because this is what we do. I think it is an absolute lock solid certainty that a Republican Congress will do wall to wall Hunter Biden and will never have a hearing about Jared Kushner. I think that is safe. Okay, so let's talk about Ukraine. Uh, there's so much going on there, um, in, including the fact that apparently the Russians have a new general and um, General David Petraeus uh, was on one of the Sunday shows yesterday talking about the new Russian general. Let's play that. The Russians were known in Syria basically for, quote, depopulating areas. That's what they did to Aleppo. That's what they did to other areas. Uh, and I think we can expect that. We saw, you know, the very first operation taken under him includes that terrible strike uh, on the rail station. This is uh, General Alexander Dvornikov, who is apparently, you know, well known as the butcher of Syria, who is now becoming the butcher of Ukraine. So the debate continues. Are we giving the Ukrainians the weapons they need? How do we respond to these ongoing war crimes? And by the way, I think the dumbest debate that's broken out is like, do we use the word genocide or do we not use the word genocide? Really? It doesn't really matter. We know what's happening. The question is, what are we going to do about it? So, Will, are we doing enough? Okay, so let's separate out the questions. Yeah. One is sort of what weapons we're supplying, and the other is sort of what's going on with the war crimes. In terms of the weapons, we've we sort of moved, right? The, the, the fight has moved to the east. It's a big open terrain. Um, you know, the Ukrainians may need tanks. Uh, what tanks they can get is not clear exactly. We're giving them, we are giving them, importantly, the Slovakians are giving them the S-300s, really important missiles that can shoot way up into the sky, can basically close the sky um, right. by threatening the absolutely that, that's crucial yeah. hugely hugely important right we're also sending them the switchblade drones which seem to be very effective and apparently like we've got some right and we've got ukrainians trained on those and apparently more are coming mm. so all of that is good i did not see any, over the weekend any updates about the tanks i did see jake sullivan saying you know we have no problem with sending them the migs except we don't want to transfer them directly from our base in germany well if it really is that narrow, then I don't see why the MiGs haven't got there. I mean, we can backfill that. So I remain convinced that what they really need is missiles more than planes, but you, you may disagree. No, no, I don't disagree. I think that the, the key, though, is whether or not we want the Ukrainians to win this war. And, I, and I've said this before. I think that there's been a slow mental uh, shift uh, at the beginning. I think the people in the Biden administration in the West assumed that Russia would win, that Ukraine would lose, and therefore they were hesitant uh, to be too aggressive. Um, then when it became apparent that um, you, the Ukrainians were able to stop uh, the, the the Russians, if they had the defensive weapons, we were willing to, um, you know, up, you know, up the ante. Uh, now the question is, are we going to give them the offensive weapons they need to drive the Russians out? And I sense a certain amount of ambivalence about uh, how strong our support should be. I mean, I think it's very clear that Russia needs to be defeated, but I'm not sure that that is the consensus, the highest reaches of NATO, where I think there probably is the sense that, OK, uh, the war is going to end with a negotiated settlement in which uh, Vladimir Putin gets to keep Don the Donbass and keep much of the territory that he's already uh, seized. So what is your take? This whole Republican talking point about that Biden doesn't want to win, the administration doesn't want to win or isn't serious about it, like, 
I, I think this was over, if, you know, there were absolutely, as Josh Rogan said, there were a lot of doubts that the, the Ukrainians could win. I think this was over really fast. In the first few days of the war, yeah. the Ukrainians stuffed the Russians. It was really clear things were not as, as we had thought. And I don't think there's been any, you know, holding back out of like ambivalence about whether the Ukrainians should win or whether we should try to help them win. And yet I still hear Republicans talking about this because it's like a reflex of theirs. Uh, right? No, 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 no. I'm not going to let you get away with that. This is not a Republican <laughs> talking point. This is the talking point you're getting from the Ukrainians. This is a talking point you're getting from uh, people like, uh, well, you know, people like uh, Alexander Vindman as well. And by the way, when I say win, I mean win not simply hold the Russians off. Can you defeat the Russian army? Can you drive them out? I'm not sure that that is our policy, or at least the policy of the West, certainly not what the Germans are uh, pushing for. Well, the explicit policy of the United States, and I think it's backed up by the weapons that we've been sending and the sanctions that we've applied, is that we are going to give the Ukrainians enough weaponry to make the Russians suffer so that to their, the point is to empower the Ukrainians to make their own decision. If they want to make a political concession, they can. We, I personally wouldn't, but I don't get to say that because I'm not a Ukrainian. I'm not there, right? If that's up to the Ukrainians, I understand that point about sovereignty, but the general rule is to empower them to beat the Russians on the battlefield, to give them leverage to do which, whichever course they choose. So how about Boris Johnson over the weekend? I mean, I, I, I wrote over the weekend that no matter what you think about Boris Johnson, it was pretty extraordinary that he decided to go to Kiev because it's not easy to get there. You don't just fly in. You don't just fly in and fly out. You have to make a long overland trip. And there he was. Um, it was actually a rather extraordinary moment, wasn't it? It was. It was. I mean, I, I have to say this about Boris Johnson. The, first of all, credit to him for going. Right. I did think as I watched him and Zelensky walking, I don't know how long that walk was. You know, we it was like a five minute video. It, I don't know. It must have taken them quite a while. And they, they have like, you know, troops around them, people trying to protect them. But I'm thinking this is kind of dangerous. Right. They're exposed. And I'm thinking if one of these guys gets taken out, I really hope it's not Zelensky. I mean, honestly, Boris Johnson, credit to him, but he's relatively expendable compared to the other guy. Um, well, I mean, that's that's the essence of courage is that you are willing to take those risks. There's no, there's no courage without some of those uh, risks. But I thought it was more than symbolic. I know that, you know, it's it's very easy to be cynical when you're talking about uh, Boris Johnson as a as a British politician. But he was there. And it's also interesting the number of countries that are reopening their embassies now in Kiev. The United States has not yet done so. Uh, but uh, there were a lot of questions over the weekend. When is the United States going to reopen its embassy there? I would rather that we led rather than were a um, trailing indicator when it comes to all of that. Uh, so I, I look forward to that. Okay, you want to talk about domestic politics for a few minutes? Yeah, but can I just say yeah, one more yeah, thing sure, about, please the, about, do. About, about, about Johnson? Like, yeah. I, I, it is important. The symbolism of going there is important. Somebody needed to do that. I'm credit to him for going. The United States strategy in Ukraine has not been to show. The United States strategy has been to work behind the scenes. And I think that's really valuable, right? We have you know, a two-hour conversation with the Ukrainians. We go through the shopping list of what they need. And we are trying to backfill other countries getting weapons in. It's really useful to have the people who have the arsenal, namely us, doing that behind the scenes. Okay, fair enough. I do not disagree with all of that. Okay, so let's talk about some of the domestic politics. So the polls continue to be absolutely terrible for the Democrats and for Joe Biden. And I know that we get some feedback from people uh, who say, 
you guys are always bashing Joe Biden. Excuse me. Um, pointing out political reality is not bashing. And also, if you have a problem, you are not going to fix it unless you acknowledge it. And I know that there are some folks that would prefer to just simply engage in kumbaya about all this. But let's talk about some of the things that are happening. We have a couple of more sound bites I want to share with you, Will. We'll do it right after this. This is Charlie Sykes, and I want to tell you about Famous Smoke Shop. A good cigar is a reward. It's a tradition. At Famous Smoke Shop, they know all about it, American-owned and independent. Famous Smoke is your neighborhood cigar shop, no matter where your neighborhood is. As a matter of fact, Famous Smoke Shop was recently named the best place to buy cigars online by both Cool Material and Cigar World. Now in their 83rd year, Famous Smoke continues to offer the authentic cigar shop experience decades worth of cigar knowledge, a huge selection of premium cigars, and low prices that every cigar enthusiast will love. Famous Smoke Shop offers a huge selection of over a thousand brands to choose from. You'll find incredible deals on everyday cigars and highly rated classics, including Romeo, Monte Cristo, Acid, Macanudo, Oliva, and Fuente. Plus, every purchase is backed by their 30-day Famous Freshness Guarantee. So, if you want your cigars fresh and delivered fast, it has to be Famous Smoke Shop. I receive my cigars from Famous Smoke Shop, and I love how simple it is to purchase. And when there's a special occasion, I love to be able to go to my humidor and find one of the special cigars. It's spring here in Wisconsin, and I have to tell you, there's nothing nicer than going out on a nice, cool spring evening and lighting up one of these cigars. I don't have to do it on a daily basis, but knowing that they're there, knowing how easy it is to replace them, is one of the things that I really look forward to these days. So here's an exclusive offer for my listeners. To save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more, go to famous-smoke.com. That's famous-smoke.com and use code BULLWORK at checkout to save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more. You'll get your favorite cigars delivered direct from their humidor to yours. That's promo code BULLWORK for $20 off your purchase at famous-smoke.com. Great cigar deals only at famous-smoke.com. And remember to use promo code BULLWORK. Okay, Will, we are back. You know, we could devote the entire program to uh, Ukraine. I have to admit, you know, I the the attack on the train station, I I, I actually wrote over the weekend, don't, don't avert your eyes. You have to look at what's happening. But I, I will admit, I couldn't take that. I just there's there's just it, the the evil is so great, it is so profound, and the implications that these people being the Russians, frankly, have a completely different culture and character when it comes to humanity, and what they're willing to do, and the fact that they would fire a missile at at, at these innocent civilians with the words you know for the children written on it, this is terrifying, it's outrageous. But the fact is, these are people with nuclear weapons and it raises the, what are they capable of doing? What are they, what do we think is imaginable? And I think they, they are continually ratcheting up the, the pure horror of it. So let me, let me interject here as the, as the lefty guy, I, I am not, I am generally a moderate, but I do have some sort of woke sympathies. And one of them is I want to be careful about talking about Russians in general, right? So the culture that you're fair, describing, fair enough. Okay. right? It's a culture of the Russian army, not not a culture of, of of Russians in general. There are people going to jail in Russia for protesting the war. But can can I just make a point about this culture of the Russian army? There are two kinds of war crimes going on in Ukraine, and they're different. And it's important to understand the difference. 
One is the kind of thing we saw in Bucha, right? Which is uh, people being, civilians being like rounded up, their hands tied behind their back, shot, killed. Uh, just, and that is a local murder. That is, that is like Mila, that is like uh, a re one regiment in one place, right? And that's, it's all terrible. That's all terrible. But that's not systematic. That happens in one place or another place. What's systematic is the kind of thing the Kramatorsk strike, the missile strike on the train station. That is an organized, deliberate, systematic effort by the entire military of Russia, led by led at the top, a deliberate decision. We're going to hit targets where people are. Right. We're going to we we are going to hit this train station. We don't care how many people are there. We're going to hit residential buildings. We're going to bomb cities, and that is just systematic targeting of or indifference to civilians. That is not going to stop and that is not going to be local. That is going to be everywhere that this battle goes on because it is a decision from the top of the Russian military. No, I, I completely agree with you. And, and and by the way, your point about the Russian people, um, Brett Stevens has a great column in the New York Times where he talks about the decision by the Boston Marathon to exclude Russian and Belarusian uh, runners uh, as, as just a, a foolish thing to take it out on them, but also how that strengthens Putin's propaganda argument that, uh, you know, that this is an attack on all Russian people rather than against uh, his regime. So I, I, I don't I don't disagree with you. Actually, I'm debating whether or not I should tell a, a, a an anecdote that will trivialize all of this. But no, I'm going to pass on the on the trivialization. People, no, no, no. We want to hear it. No, no, I just I guess I'm in a mood right now where the world needs to get over its illusions and its naivete about evil. Uh, that you can't persuade evil, you can't cure evil. Um, all you can do is fight, struggle, and um, and kill. <laughs> frankly, you know the people who are responsible about all of this. So maybe I'm in a, a realistic place. Maybe I'm in a dark place. I'm not sure. Okay, so I promised uh, Will we were going to talk about some domestic issues. I'm interested to get your take on a couple of these things. One of the strongest issues I think this year for Republicans is going to be what's happening with the border. And I know that a lot of Democrats are very upset about what the Biden administration is about to do regarding Title 42, which has allowed immigration officials to deport migrants crossing the borders during the pandemic. Uh, the, the Biden administration announced it's going to wind down Title 42 by the end of May, which even a lot of Democrats think will result in another surge at the border, which Republicans will exploit. And in case there was any doubt about that, Mitch McConnell was on Fox News Sunday talking about it. Let's play that. I mean, it's an outrageous decision uh, to eliminate Title 42. It will produce a gusher, be far beyond the open border we already have, produce an, a gusher of additional people coming in Totally inconsistent, by the way, with them asking us for $10 billion for vaccines and therapeutics. Uh, and what we said in the Senate was, <clears throat> not just we Republicans, but five or six Democrats as well, let us offer an amendment to guarantee that Title 42 stays in place and we'll be happy to go ahead and pass uh, the uh, COVID relief uh, package. All right. So, Will, your comments. OK, on this one, Charlie, I am absolutely a liberal. <laughs> OK, now, the, what does that the problem mean? Is we're, we're, we're mixing up two issues here. I'm on the administration side. Title 42 is a covid rule. OK, if you want to, like, stop the influx at the border, make a separate policy about that. Do it at the, the executive. Do it as a as a law, something like that. When McConnell says it is inconsistent, he's saying it is inconsistent 
to deny this sort of extraneous amendment about Title 42. And he's literally holding up, as he said, $10 billion in funding for vaccines and therapies. That money should not be held up. That, that's a COVID thing. Right. The, the conservatives are the people who told us COVID is declining. Get rid of these mask policies. They should. These, our policies should be contingent on how bad COVID is. COVID has declined. We should get rid of Title 42. And anything we want to do to stop the influx at the border, which I agree is a problem and is overlooked by the left, should be done separately, not as part of Title 42. Okay, so let's have a reality check here, Okay. Reed Teixeira wrote about this last week, and he said, you have to wonder about this decision to rescind the Title 42 uh, regulation because of the political real world implications. And he says, you know, this is predictably going to lead to a surge at the border and there's no real plan how to contain it. I mean, you can say, and I support all kinds of things to contain it. There's no plan. And one indication of that is that all four vulnerable Democratic Senate incumbents, Mark Kelly from Arizona, Ralph Warnock from Georgia, Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, and Cortez Masto from Nevada are all vigorously opposed to this. They are not quote unquote liberals on this. This is this is uh, what uh, what what Cortez Masto said from uh, Nevada. She said, this is the wrong way to do this. It will leave the administration unprepared for a surge at the border. We should be working to fix our immigration system by investing in border security and treating immigrant families with dignity. Instead, the administration is acting without a detailed plan. And that, I think, is the key thing is that if you are, and clearly, as you point out, you can defend on the merits lifting this particular rule. But if you don't have a plan, then don't be surprised when you have a real problem and it comes back to bite you politically in the ass, including the possibility of uh, of killing off those four vulnerable Democratic senators. Okay. I agree with the senators about the plan. We need a plan. It, it's, I, so I've, I've made my point about, the, about mixing yeah. this with COVID, right? On, on the border itself. If you are a liberal and you don't watch Fox News and you're watching, you know, so-called mainstream media, you're you're not getting this story, right? They they don't. I mean, it's a completely different universe. If you watch Fox News, it's border, 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 twenty four hours, right? And it, it you ju- I just don't see these stories in on uh, in the, the other yeah. TV networks, and and it's a serious problem. And the, it, the Democrats and the Biden administration are fools to ignore this and think that it will go away, it, it, and, and especially in the border states. But it's not just in the border states. In other places, people are, are concerned about it. And it's not, it's not enlightened to have a completely unregulated border where people are just coming across. You, 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 you know, we talk about the rule of law, right? Immigration is great. Orderly immigration where people follow the rules. So absolutely, we need a plan. This Title 42 is not the plan. No, and uh, what Teixeira said was that it appears that the upper reaches of the Democratic Party still have not absorbed the extent of their party's Hispanic and working class voter problems. Maybe they're still high on the fumes of rising diversity happy talk. Ooh, yeah, so um, there is that. You want to talk about uh, student loans because that came up over the weekend as well. Jen Saki was talking about the administration's fourth emergency suspension of student loan payments. Now, even though, you know, obviously the economy is doing much better, even though the pandemic is going down, um, they extended this uh, moratorium on repayment of student loans until August 31st. Here she was yesterday morning. 
uh, it isn't everybody in the country who has student loans. A lot of people do. And this is a period of time where the president, the Department of Education, made the decision to continue to pause repayments and will continue to assess as we get closer to the, the next deadline in August. Okay, so, Will, you said that on the last topic you were a liberal. I guess I am still a conservative on this one because I think that people probably should pay the money that they owe. And also, look, there are a lot of people with a lot of debts around the country. This just strikes me as pretty naked pandering. But your thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree with you here. And and Jen Psaki is an absolute hypocrite on this issue. The White House is a hypocrite. Okay, so... So we just got through, I just, you know, sort of made the case that in Title 42 is a COVID policy. It's time has passed as COVID has declined and they've just extend, you know, so they're the right wants to extend the policy that was for COVID to deal with a separate issue, which is immigration. This student loan stuff is the liberal version of it, right? It is, well, we don't really like people having to repay their student loans. We had this COVID policy about, you know, delaying repayments. And now as COVID declines, what are we going to do? Oh, we're going to extend this because it's not really about COVID to them, right? And again, we should not be continuing a policy that was based on the COVID situation. In addition to that, Charlie, I'm going to agree with your libertarian sympathies here. People take out loans, right? They should repay those loans. If you're going to do some kind of forgiveness or you're going to like try to support people going to higher education, it shouldn't be done this way. It shouldn't be forgiving loans that people took out to go to fancy schools, right? You can do it Biden's way. You can like s- subsidize people to go to community college. Uh, you can partially subsidize. So people who go to state schools uh, and save the taxpayers money get, uh, you know, they get some compensation. But to bail out the people who took out massive loans to go to fancy schools, that is wrong. And it's not enlightened and it's not progressive. Uh, the story that I have told, and again, I apologize to people who've heard me say this, um, because I've, I have told this story. I remember back in 2016, I was talking with a um, a Wisconsin politician who I disagree with on a lot of things, but is is actually has a pretty good sense of public opinion in the in the state. And th- this was uh, late in 2016 when I was assuming that uh, Donald Trump was uh, headed for defeat. And he said that he was at an event up in northern Wisconsin, um, you know, heavily rural area. And one of the Democratic candidates for state Senate was uh, making the case for was it free college or forgiveness of loans was one of those two issues. And he said he was looking around the room and, you know, a lot of these people were farmers and they were stone cold because the idea that they would be asked to subsidize somebody else's kids, college education, or that people would not have to pay back their loans. So a lot of these farmers are deeply in debt. They have a lot of big loans, big mortgages, and nobody was talking about telling them they didn't have to uh, uh, pay back their money. And he said it was at that moment that he thought that Republicans were going to win in 2016. And he was absolutely right. So I know that a lot of Democrats are telling themselves that these issues uh, are actually going to work for them, but the downside is also considerable. All right, one last question for you, okay? Since since it's Monday. New York Times reporting that the January 6th panel has evidence for a criminal referral of Trump, but it's split on sending it despite concluding that it has enough evidence for the criminal uh, referral. The committee is concerned that making a referral to the Justice Department would backfire by politicizing the investigation into the Capitol riot. Your thoughts, what should they do if you were advising the Democrats who control that committee? Well, I have to admit, I agree. (laughs) 
I agree with the, the people who don't. I, I understand the point that like, you know, there's nothing you can do to stop Republicans from politicizing this. They already said the whole January 6th committee is a political operation, but still it's not necessary. It's not necessary to make this, to, to, to formally make an accusation against Trump because the justice department can do that, right? The justice department can pursue Trump. Uh, I, I think it doesn't help the committee and it doesn't help public credibility doesn't help the legitimacy of the whole thing for the committee to make that determination. Well, surprisingly, I I kind of agree with your point here that it's not necessary. On the other hand, where I think I, I come down on this is that excuses have been made for the last six years that somebody else is going to do it. That, you know what, if we do X, Y, or Z, that will make them mad and they will say whatever. Look, whatever they do, the Republicans in Trump world will attack the investigation there. It doesn't matter whether they make the referral, they don't make the referral. The entire weight of the right will be invested in discrediting whatever the Department of Justice does. I mean, they could name a special counsel, a political castrati who has spent the last 20 years <laughs> in a monastery of nonpartisanship, and they will be demonized within six weeks. We've seen that happen with Robert Mueller. So the notion that, well, gosh, you know, we need to deter ourselves because otherwise we will make these people mad and they will say bad things. Okay, kind of we've done this. We've been through all of this. But it's also this whole process that I guess, and here's my PTSD. I have just seen this happen in the in the uh, Trump candidacy, the Trump presidency, the post-Trump presidency, that everybody is sitting around going, well, somebody ought to do something about it, but it probably shouldn't be us. If we don't, you know, if, you know, maybe somebody, Robert Mueller's sitting there going, I'm not actually going to be doing anything here, but, but hey, somebody really ought to consider doing something. And we've seen this again and again and again. So at some point, just do your fucking job and, <laughs> and worry about the consequences anyway, because you can't control them. All you can control is what you do, not what the response is. And the response is, if you understand the response will be bad faith and demagogic, whatever you do, then why not just decide to do the right thing anyway? I felt better yeah. saying that. I really did. That's that's the first thing I've said today that actually made me feel good. So it, Yeah, it's an excellent point. It's a great way to live your life. Something must be done. Why don't you be the person to do it? Yes. I Yes. Maybe we should end on that high note. These Let's are, do it. These are words to live by. Will Salatan, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast as you do every Monday. Thank you, Charlie. I missed you last week. It was great to be back. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. Do this all over again. <laughs>